This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yes, yes. Welcome in to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network, where you can follow us on Twitter at McKernan Show. Like the page on Facebook, if you would be so kind, at the Tim McKernan Show. And uh, whatever podcast platform you use, according to our data, it's about 85% of you using iTunes. But wherever you may review the podcast, please give it a positive review as I'm learning the podcast business. I'm finding out how important all of this stuff is. I still don't really know why. I'm just being told that it is, and therefore I'm asking you to be so kind to do it. So usually on Wednesdays, we broadcast from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Ryan Kelly, our fine, fine sponsor of our studios uh, on the Tim McKernan Show. We uh, do questions from the audience. And uh, it's been great to see the number of downloads the, the segment's been getting with uh, me, uh, the Plowboy, and Iggy every Wednesday. And we will return to that next week. But I wanted to do something different this week. Um, and that is to tell a story that some of you may know. Um, and even if you do know it, you have never heard me actually tell it with this detail, uh, actually heard my voice, uh, or you may not be aware of it if you are either new to the show or if you are listening to the podcast and not necessarily uh, in the St. Louis area. And because tomorrow, when we will be uh, putting this podcast up, is Thanksgiving, and also... Because uh, yesterday, at least when we were putting this podcast up, is the fifth anniversary of this whole event. Um, It made me want to share it. Uh, And like I said, it's the first time I'm actually reading it um, anywhere where my voice will be recorded. And also, it's the first time I'm actually reading it. I haven't even gone through it before recording it. Uh, And it's the first time I'm reading it in a long time. Um, But uh, I wanted to do that. I'm a little worried I won't be able to get through it without getting emotional. Um, But perhaps I will be able to uh, to stay in character, so to speak, and and not break. I guess we'll find out here over the next few minutes. But the background, um, without giving away the story uh, of the reasoning for wanting to read the story and share it for those of you who aren't familiar with it or for those of you who are familiar with it, but it's been five years, is because what uh, my family and I experienced five years ago was um, a, a, a very difficult, brutal experience. And 
now, because of that experience, the empathy that I have, that maybe I should have had before it, but I certainly have now, to cancer um, is, I think, as high as it can be uh, because I experienced hearing those words. You have cancer. Um, and so anytime, anytime beforehand when I would hear somebody had cancer or they were telling me they had cancer, uh, it stops you in your tracks. That's, that's still the case. But once it's actually said to you, and then you experience, again, and as you'll hear in the story, just really the first chapter of that reality, um, it, it changes your perspective. It, it can't help but change your perspective. And, uh, and, and since it's happened, um, there have been a number of things that have, because of it taking place, have changed my perspective on a variety of things. And I feel like with it being Thanksgiving tomorrow, and I love Thanksgiving. I love it's my favorite holiday. Um, I love it's just family getting together, uh, no pressure to get gifts, just getting together, hanging out, and uh, enjoying company. And I love it. It's my favorite. It's at my absolute favorite. Um, but because it, it happens to tie in with the fifth anniversary and with Thanksgiving, I wanted to share it. Uh, and so I will read the story. Um, and for those of you who are personally dealing with cancer, and whether that be you yourself or a family member or a close friend, a loved one, whatever the case might be, um, I was told back in, in 2012 and 2013 when this story was made public um, that it helped some people. And uh, that is the main reason for me sharing it then and for sharing it here again five years later. The title of the story I wrote on InsideSTL.com in 2012 was The Price of Hope. And this is the reading of the story. Tim, I wanted to be the one to call you since I've known you the longest and I didn't want you to hear this from someone you didn't know very well. But taking a look at your CT scans, I'm afraid it looks like you have lymphoma. I received that call from my doctor at 342 on Wednesday, November 14th. I was sitting in my office and with that one phone call, my world changed instantaneously. Cancer at age 36. I didn't know much about lymphoma, Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's, but I just had been told by my doctor that I had it. I sat there and I just stared. He was talking and technically I was listening, but I really wasn't hearing him. I suppose I remember him telling me about the 85 to 90% survivor rates for lymphoma. He told me about chemotherapy and he told me that I could beat it, but I just sat there in shock. Cancer. Everything had started back in late July. I don't know if it was a coincidence or not, but right after I had a root canal, I woke up with a dry mouth and I've woken up with a dry mouth every day since. I walk into the studio every morning with a couple of bottles of water. I also was waking up with pain in my right ankle one day, then my right wrist the next day, then back to my right ankle the following day, then back to my wrist, just depended on the day. But either way, I would wake up with pain in a joint somewhere on the right side of my body. This had been going on for a few weeks, so I went and saw a doctor. They had me tested for rheumatoid arthritis. It came back negative. The systems persisted. A couple of weeks later, he had me tested for diabetes. It came back negative. The systems persisted. 
Fortunately, I began seeing a massage therapist whose work put the joint pain to an end, and I hadn't experienced it since, but the dry mouth continued. And so I saw an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and he had me tested for what's pronounced, I believe, as Sorgen's disease, and I could be Sjogren's disease, I could be butchering it, but it also came back negative. The doctor's visit started in early August, and I was now on to a, another doctor to see if I had celiac disease. This was on Halloween. The test came back negative again, but this time, this doctor discovered I had a really weak immune system. My immune system was really low, and so the next step would be to go to collect the quantitative data, to collect qualitative data, and see how my immune system reacted to a vaccine. On November 8th, I was injected with the vaccine, and I was to go back to that doctor a month later to see how my immune system reacted. In the meantime, I had developed a cough. It was an odd cough. Most of the time, you get a cough, and it goes away after a couple of days. Well, with this cough, it was sticking around. And unlike most coughs, nothing was coming up. It was just a dry, persistent cough. I was coughing so badly over the weekend that I got a headache. Considering the information I had received on my immune system, I thought it'd be wise to get to the doctor and have it checked out. This was on Monday, November 12th. I went in thinking the appointment was no big deal. Hopefully, they'd be able to give me some medicine and that would be it. But at the end of discussing it with my doctor, she said I should get a chest x-ray just to double check. So I went down to the outpatient services area where I was becoming a regular with all the blood tests I'd been getting over the last few months, and I got a chest x-ray. Now, during the show on Tuesday, November 13th, I got a phone call. It was from the doctor I had seen the day before. Following the show, I gave her a call back, and she informed me that my lymph nodes in my chest were really swollen, and while it was nothing to lose sleep over, she wanted me to get a CT scan just to be safe. When lymph nodes are that large, it can be a variety of things, most of which are harmless, but it can be lymphoma. So because we were scheduled to go to Sanibel, Florida, the spot where Anna Marie and I were married, Friday on the 16th for our first wedding anniversary, I wanted to get this taken care of as quickly as possible. I went out to get the CT scan that afternoon, and that was, I hoped, that. But as you can imagine, anytime you hear the word lymphoma, it gets you nervous. I had only told my wife and parents about it, and I was hoping that's as many people as would ever have to worry about it. And then at 3.42 p.m., Wednesday, November 14th, the phone rang. It was my doctor. It's never good when it's the head guy calling you. And unfortunately, via poker tells over the years, based on the tone of his voice, within five words of the start of the conversation, I knew I was fucked. That's when I heard those words. Tim, I wanted to be the one to call you since I've known you the longest and I didn't want you to hear this from someone you don't know very well, but taking a look at your CT scans, I'm afraid it looks like you have lymphoma. And while he was talking, I remember just staring. My mind was racing, but I was numb. During the occasional moments when I would somehow be able to pay attention, I heard him talk about the survivor rate in chemotherapy, he talked about people who have gotten it and beaten it, and even though I'm sure he's had to make worse phone calls than that. He apologized for having to be the one to give me the news. Kind of in the same way you say thank you to a police officer after being handed a speeding ticket, I thanked him for the phone call and hung up. No matter what, life would never be the same after that phone call. I sat there dumbfounded. Now I thought comes the tough part, or the first of many 
tough parts. Now I have to tell my family. I walked out of my office and down the hall to my dad's office. I asked him to come back to talk. He closed the door behind him. He sat down thinking we were going to talk about business. Of course, at that moment, the business was the furthest thing from my mind. Rather directly, I told him I had just received a call from our doctor and that he told me the CT scans indicate lymphoma. It's always awful when your dad cries, isn't it? We talked for a few minutes, and as you might imagine, it was pretty rough. But I still had two brothers, a sister, a mother-in-law, a father-in-law, my mother, and my wife to tell. I said to my dad, well, I guess I have to call mom and Anna Marie. Timmy, I think you can call your mother, but I think you should tell Anna Marie face-to-face. It was my dad's advice. It was a good call. In my shock, in my haste, I wasn't really thinking clearly. No matter what, though, these conversations were going to be brutal. My dad made a great prediction. Knowing my mom is forever positive, he said she'll focus on the 85% to 90% survivor rate, not the fact that her son has cancer. Sure enough, that's exactly what she did. Of all the phone calls I made that night to my brothers, to my sister, to my mother and father-in-law, that call to my mom was probably the easiest one. That's what hope will do for you. The phone call that was the toughest was my little sister. One of her closest friends was Megan Boken, the St. Louis University graduate and volleyball player who was shot and killed in August. She had already dealt with more than most 22-year-olds had been forced to handle this year, and I had to call her and tell her that her oldest brother had cancer. Well, she said, I'll be there for you whenever you need me, just like you've always been there for me whenever I've needed you. Reading those words now still crushes me. The most difficult moment of all, and I guess the moment I'll never forget, was telling Anna Marie. That drive from downtown St. Louis westbound on Highway 40 at rush hour is always unpleasant. Knowing you're about to tell your wife that your doctor just told you that you have lymphoma makes it unbearable. Now, Anna Marie was under the impression, like I had been before getting the phone call, that we were going to find out the results on Thursday at a scheduled appointment. This was Wednesday, so she had no idea, nor was she thinking about the possibility that I had been told anything while downtown at work. I arrived home and went upstairs. She was on the phone with her mom. It was the first time she was telling her mom anything about the possibility of me having lymphoma. She got off the phone. She could see in my eyes that I had something important to tell her. So there was a bit of a pause. And then I told her. The next 10 minutes were some of the most painful and unfortunately memorable minutes of my life. She cried so hard that she couldn't stand up. I just held her. We just stood and held each other. There was nothing else to do. She was sobbing and apologizing for sobbing because she figured that wasn't helping my state of mind. However, oddly enough, while it was devastating to be the person who caused one of the most important people in my life so much pain, her actions and words in those 10 minutes let me know that there was no way I was going to be alone in this fight. Telling my wife and making those phone calls that night made the evening of November 14th, 2012, one of the worst nights of my life. Knowing that just by speaking words to the people closest to me, I was going to cause them pain, it was heartbreaking. Don't get me wrong. I was shocked. I was scared. But I was fine with me having to deal with it. But the fact that my situation was going to hurt some people who were just wonderful human beings who happened to be related to me made me feel terrible. And that feeling didn't just go away after making those calls and telling everyone the news. It got to be time to go to bed, and it hit me. There was no way in hell I was going to be able to have a good night's sleep. My mind wouldn't allow it. 
even for the brief moments when I was able to focus on something else other than the phone call from my doctor within seconds, it had hit me. I have cancer. I was lying in bed watching television. I remember flipping around and coming upon David Letterman's monologue. One of the jokes made me laugh, but like gravity, it had pulled me back. Oh yeah, I have cancer. Maybe I'd be able to fall asleep, but at some point in the middle of the night, I knew I would wake up and it had hit me again. Oh yeah, I have cancer. Sure enough, that moment in the middle of the night came at 4.20. Do with that what you want, but for the record, it was 4.20 on my clock. I'm one of those people who has their alarm clock set 25 minutes fast, even though I know it's set 25 minutes fast, so I have no idea what the point of it is, but that's what it was. So doing the math, that moment really came at 3.55. I woke up, and I figured that was it. I was going to be up for the night. After going for a mid-morning piss, I returned to bed, figuring I was about to toss and turn for a half hour before conceding, and then somehow going in and doing the show. Surprisingly, I fell back asleep. And what happened while I fell asleep is something that I cannot forget. I hesitate to share it. I'm sure many people will say it didn't happen, but all I know is that it did. Interpret it however you want, but it happened. And here is a disclaimer. For the record, I am not a religious person. Contrary to some, what some may say, I'm not anti-religion, not at all. I want people of all faiths to be able to practice the religion of their choice. I just don't want that religion to have any role in governmental policy, just like you. No matter what your beliefs are, I don't know what happens after we die. I'm open to all theories. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic grade school and high school. And ironically, it was my theology class at St. Louis U High that taught me critical thinking and what brought me closer to being agnostic than Catholic. However, I don't loathe religion or think those who practice it are fools. Many of the finest people I have met are quite religious. I've just noticed a trend over the last eight years or so to implement a specific religion in some political campaigns, and that has turned me off quite a bit. But whatever the hell took place when I went back to sleep, whether it be a hallucination caused by the emotion and stress of the situation or something otherworldly, it happened. Do with it what you want. But this happened. As I was sleeping, I guess I began to dream. But unlike normal dreams, this dream was just a sunlight object pulsing with light behind it. It was an orangish, yellowish circle with a bright white light behind it. And the orangish, yellowish circle just kept pulsing. I recall the light being so bright that I initially wondered if I had overslept and that the light was that was causing me to cringe was coming in through the windows from the outside. But then I had some form of awareness that I was dreaming and the presence of the light was calming. When my alarm went off, it was still pitch black outside. A part of me is hesitant or even embarrassed to just write about it as I know it comes off as batshit. And I'll be the first one to say that it could have been some kind of mind fuck that came as the result of the hell of the previous 13 hours, but it happened. And it was calming in a time of fear and sadness. As I wrote, do with it what you want. But for the purpose of telling the story, I want to include everything. Somehow I was able to go in and do the show that morning. Usually hosting the show is something I look forward to doing and could do if I woke up at 6.50 in the morning. On this particular morning, I was dreading it. Damn near everything that goes on in my life I share with the audience. And here I was with the biggest and worst news of my life, and I could not talk about it. Out of pure coincidence, our producer, Producer Joe, had lined up a bunch of interviews for the day. We had inter representatives from every team in the area on that same day back in 2011. Cardinals, Rams, Blues, Missouri, Illinois, and St. Louis U. He called it a tradition since he did it last year on my final show before leaving for my wedding. In this case, in 2012, it was about the best thing I could ask for on the show 
because I don't know how I could have gone about doing the show like we normally do and act like everything's cool. Fortunately, since we were supposed to go to Sanibel, that show on Thursday, November 15th, was already scheduled to be my last show until after Thanksgiving, meaning I wasn't supposed to be back on the air until November 26th. That allowed me to handle whatever was going to need to be handled without having to explain why I was missing shows. But the news that came with the phone call on Wednesday also likely meant that we weren't going to be going to Florida. I mean, I couldn't even look at our wedding pictures around the house without feeling pain. I'd look at my face in those pictures, which is already hideous and really ruins the images. And I'd think, look at that fucking guy. He's smiling on one of the best days of his life, and he has no idea what's coming in less than a year. So I couldn't imagine returning to the location of our wedding, which really did wind up being one of the best days of my life, and sit there in the same spot one year later with cancer. That was going to be a brutal decision. I called my mom after the show to discuss that decision and see how she was doing. True to form, she was still being absurdly positive. I told her I could call her from a burning building and she'd still remain calm and tell me that I'll be fine. Considering my pragmatism, often mistaken for pessimism, her perpetual optimism was rather annoying and it sure as hell seemed illogical based on what we knew. But that didn't stop her. She was going on and on about how everything was going to be fine. And then she worked in a city slickers reference to provide some context of the situation. Yes, city slickers. Now, it's one thing to quote The Godfather, The Graduate, or even Caddyshack, but less than 24 hours ago, I was told I had cancer. I don't need FDR's inaugural address, but I would appreciate more than a line from city slickers. I couldn't let it go by without asking what the hell she was talking about. And she said, you know, when they're riding along and they're asking each other about the best days of their lives and the worst day of their lives... This still wasn't working for me. Well, Billy Crystal's character says the worst day of his life was when they found out his wife had a lump in her breast and they thought it was cancer. But he goes on to say later that day, they found out it wasn't cancer, she said, recapping the magic of the City Slickers screenplay. And Bruno Kirby's character says to Billy Crystal that because it turned out his wife didn't have cancer, that his worst day actually became his best day. So what does that have to do with my situation? Well, you never know. Maybe they'll find out you don't have cancer and it'll be the best day. I appreciated the optimism, but I worried that when the news became official after my biopsy and when that first chemotherapy session arrived, it was going to hit my mom harder than anybody because then there could be no more denying that this was real and her son had cancer. Later that afternoon, Anna Marie and I headed to the hospital to meet with the doctor for the appointment that was supposed to be the moment we found out the results of my CT scan. That drama was eliminated 24 hours earlier with the phone call from my other doctor. Now we were just going to ask questions and find out the next step. I sat there with my wife and had a bunch of questions typed out on my phone, but there wouldn't be much time for questions. After pressing all over me on the examination table, the doctor told me to hop off and sit down in the chair next to Anna Marie. If there's one thing I want you to take away from today, it's this. Whatever you have, it's curable and it's not life-threatening. His tone was a little different than the tone I heard in the phone call the day before. I asked him why that was. And he said, it's because I've had a chance to examine you. The doctor who called me had not. He was just making the phone call with the bad news because he's been my family doctor for years and he felt an obligation to handle it. But the CT scan was that bad that he felt confident enough to tell me the overwhelming probability was lymphoma. This doctor also considered lymphoma to be likely, but he included another possibility. He said, you likely either have Hodgkin's lymphoma or sarcoidosis. Well, 
Now I've gone from as close to a diagnosis without getting a diagnosis of cancer to at least having some hope that it's this sarcoidosis thing. Sarcoidosis, unlike lymphoma, is not malignant. It's also rather uncommon in white males. Bernie Mac had sarcoidosis. So did Reggie White. Actress Tisha Campbell has sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis, it can be a problem, but it also can be so trivial that people may have it and not even know they have it. I didn't know much more about it, but all I knew is that at that moment, given the alternative, I wanted to have sarcoidosis. The next step was to get a biopsy. The doctor said I had a raised lymph node near my right collarbone, and that was a good thing because a surgeon would be able to take that raised lymph node off and use it for my biopsy. But because he wanted to get the biopsy as soon as possible, he told us that we could not go to Sanibel. We were scheduled to leave on Friday the next day, and the doctor told us that his plan was to have me see a surgeon Friday and get that raised lymph node excised. If that didn't work, and by that he meant if there wasn't enough tissue to determine what was wrong, they'd have to go into my chest in a more complex procedure that would require anesthesia. But we weren't focused on that. While we were sad that our first anniversary trip was officially no longer a possibility, we were happy to walk out of that hospital that night with some form of hope that it was not cancer. Hell, we were so happy we actually went out to celebrate. Man, in hindsight, the idea of going out to celebrate something so trivial, relatively speaking, seems so batshit, but that's how tense the situation was. That's how emotional it was. The slightest bit of good news, or what we interpreted as good news, was enough for a celebration. And so we went to Citizen Kane's at 8.30 on a Thursday night. Looking back on that night, it was strange how happy we were. But after the news of Wednesday, the glimmer of hope from Thursday was enough to go out and celebrate. And even if we were tricking ourselves into believing there was a chance for something that really didn't exist, the rush of the hope was enough to bring us relative happiness and a good night's sleep. But the next morning, we were back at it. This time, I had to meet with the surgeon who was going to perform my biopsy. But there was just one problem. We went in to see him. He didn't see a raised lymph node. And so there was no biopsy to perform. I noticed he began asking questions such as, has anyone in your family had lymphoma? Are you experiencing night sweats? Have you lost a lot of weight recently? Since I had been doing exactly what doctors can't stand patients doing, looking up their disease on the internet, I knew exactly why he was asking. He was going through the specific symptoms of lymphoma, and when he couldn't find the raised lymph node, and I told him the only things that I had were a dry mouth and a persistent cough, I could tell he was wondering if this really was lymphoma. Our hopes were raised once again. It's funny, except by funny, I mean miserable, how going through this process, you just try and interpret any little thing any little phrase and try and see if you can piece together the doctor word puzzle. But in reality, no one would really know for certain what was going on with me until I had a biopsy. And now that there was no raised lymph node in my right shoulder, a cardiothoracic surgeon was going to have to perform a mediastinoscopy. What's a mediastinoscopy? Since it was my body, I wanted to know that as well. And from the good people at Wikipedia, mediastinoscopy is a procedure that enables visualization of the contents of the mediastinum, usually for the purpose of obtaining a biopsy. Mediastinoscopy is often used for staging of lymph nodes or lung cancer or for diagnosing other conditions affecting structures in the mediastinum, such as sarcoidosis or lymphoma. Mediastinoscopy involves making an incision approximately one centimeter above the suprasternal notch of the sternum or breastbone. Dissection is carried out down to the pretracheal space and down to the carina, and I could be completely mispronouncing this for the record. A scope is then advanced into the created tunnel, 
which provides a view of the mediastinum. The scope may provide direct visualization or may be attached to a video monitor. Mediastinoscopy provides access to the mediastinal lymph nodes levels 2, 4, and 7. Since that makes no sense to me, here's my definition for my brethren and the good people of South St. Louis. Basically, an anesthesiologist puts me to sleep. The surgeon cuts me up real nice, like above the sternum, and then slides a scope down there to get tissue to see if I have cancer, and if so, what kind of lymphoma it is. Now, a family member is a surgeon, and so I contacted him about the situation. He was the first person outside of my immediate family to find out about my now 48-hour-old phone call telling me I had lymphoma. But he wasn't so sure. It's not that he knew one way or the other, but he said swollen lymph nodes can be a wide variety of issues. He wanted me to get a copy of my CT scan, and then he would take a look at it, along with a cardiothoracic surgeon he knew and thought the world of. So once again, on back-to-back days, Anna Marie and I were feeling hope. Maybe this was a false alarm. Maybe I had something other than cancer. We got the CD of the CT scan and brought it over to him. And while talking to him, we got the sense that there was some hope that it was more likely sarcoidosis than cancer, since I had nothing but a cough. We were starting to get excited again, and that feeling of hope made falling asleep Friday night easy. I got up Saturday, bright and early at noon, and wandered downstairs. I had a voicemail from the surgeon, so I immediately gave him a call back. Tim, I talked with the cardiothoracic surgeon. He had a chance to look at your CT scan. He thinks it's best for you to meet with him on Monday, and then he will perform a mediastinoscopy on Tuesday. His tone was less upbeat than when we had talked the day before. Once again, I was picking up a read. And for the first time in two days, this was not a good one. Okay, I said. Did he say anything about the CT scans, though? Tim, you know what you could have. But no one will know for sure until we get tissue. So he just needs to get you in there and perform the mediastinoscopy. And with that, I was depressed again. It wasn't just the words. It was the tone. And this was family. He didn't have to say it, but I knew that he had seen the CT scan as well, and he had talked to the cardiothoracic surgeon, and they both thought I had cancer. I'll tell you what, you can't put a price on hope, but you know it's awfully expensive when you feel like you're losing it. Wednesday was hell. There was the phone call and the ensuing sadness. The first part of Thursday was also hell, but once we got a bit of hope, Thursday wound up being okay. More hope Friday. Friday was okay. But after that phone call Saturday, hope was flying back out the window and the sadness set in. It was now 1230 on Saturday afternoon, and I was going to have to find something to do to kill time until Monday morning when I'd have my pre-surgery meeting with the cardiothoracic surgeon. The waiting, as it has been sung by Tom Petty, is indeed the hardest part. Anyone who has been down this road can vouch for that. I hope, however, you have no clue, nor will you ever have a clue what I'm talking about. After going to get Anna Maria an anniversary gift and then wandering around the grocery store, I returned home to just sulk and sit on the couch. My parents, brothers, sister, sister-in-law, and mother and father-in-law were all coming over in a few hours to watch the Missouri-Syracuse football game, but in reality, everyone was coming over because of the situation. And while I was looking forward to it, when everyone got there and was hanging out, I found myself getting more sad. I was thinking all of these people are here for me but all of these people are hurting because of me. Maybe if I had some shitty family members or shitty in-laws, I wouldn't have felt so badly. But I'm so fucking lucky to have this incredible wife who happens to have incredible parents and this incredible family, all full of just great character people, that it broke my heart 
to think of what pain I must have been causing them. Switching the pronouns on the great Dolph Lundgren's Ivan Drago in Rocky IV, if I die, I die. That's how I felt. If this cancer was going to take me down, it would do so with a battle. But if I died, I died. I could handle that. But I couldn't handle seeing these people who were in my home hurting. It made what was supposed to be a fun night a sad night for me. I think everyone else had a good time, but I couldn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. It was supposed to be a distraction. Instead, it became a reminder of the most difficult part of the whole situation for me. Sleep wasn't easy that night. And Sunday was torture. Nothing to do. No one came over. It was just the waiting. Waiting to go see my surgeon on Monday. And as noted above, waiting was the worst because that's when my mind would go wild with bat shittery. I'd think of the worst possible scenarios and I'd spend my free time, which was the entire time, reading stories on lymphoma, reading community forums with lymphoma patients and trying to find out what celebrities had lymphoma and how they were doing or did. NHL legend Mario Lemieux was the one guy I kept going back to. Surprisingly, there aren't a lot of celebrities with lymphoma. Some may have it and elected to try and fight it privately, but contrary to what I expected, the list was really limited to Lemieux, Michael C. Hall from Dexter, John Lester, golfer Paul Azinger, Ethan Zone, who won Survivor in Season 2 and has since become a prominent force in the cancer community because of starting up a foundation with his winnings and serving as a spokesperson. Other celebrities didn't have it. They had it. And it got them. Joey Ramone, Senator Arlen Specter, Roger Maris, and Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Lemieux's story, however, was the most encouraging. I mean, he was diagnosed in January of 1993, and he was back on the ice and led the league in points three months later. I knew he was still around and doing just fine, and so that was the guy I would keep reading about. Of course, Lemieux was a world-class athlete, and I was an AM radio talk show host. So there was a good chance he was in better shape when he got diagnosed. I kept reading that getting yourself in good shape through eating right and yoga were a couple of things lymphoma patients would make sure to do. I feared my days of White Castle were over, but I feared the media stinoscopy that was to come Tuesday a bit more. First, we had to meet with the cardiothoracic surgeon who was going to perform it on Monday, Monday, November 19th, our first wedding anniversary. We were supposed to spend it in Florida at the exact spot we had gotten married. Instead, we were driving to the hospital to meet with the cardiothoracic surgeon. We sat down in his office and he turned his computer to monitor toward us. On that monitor was my CT scan and he showed me where my lymph nodes were and just how abnormally large they were. It was the first time anyone had described anything about my body as being abnormally large. Lymph nodes, he explained, are usually about the size of a Skittle. Mine were the size of walnuts. Not good. Because the surgery we were there to discuss carried a 1% chance of causing me to lose my voice, Anna Marie, my mom, and Anna Marie's mom all wanted to see if there was a way they could get enough tissue to diagnose me without doing this procedure. The doctor said no. If I was to do a procedure other than a media stinoscopy, he said, if someone were to excise a lymph node from your shoulder, for example, and it came back saying you did not have cancer, I would not believe it. Whoa. Whoa. So what are you saying, I asked, even though I had a feeling that I already knew what he just said said. I'm saying that I think you have cancer. That's what I thought he was saying. He said it would be pathological to not have this procedure. These lymph nodes are not right. If I were to see this CT scan three times this week, two of the three people would have cancer. And then a defining statement from the doctor. 
looking at this CT scan. This is textbook lymphoma. And that laid it out pretty clearly. I asked him what made him so confident. And then he answered quite succinctly, 12 years of practice. Perfect. He then went on to say, it's a solid chance it's cancer. But it's also a solid chance it's not. It could be sarcoidosis. could be a fungal infection that some people get in this region of the country. Knowing that sarcoidosis was quite rare for white males, I followed up with a question. How many white males have you seen with sarcoidosis in your 12 years of practice? His answer, none. Perfect. Even though he was giving us bad news, although it really wasn't news anymore, but it sure still was bad, we really appreciated the time he was spending with us and the tact with which he handled the situation. Once we got done with this really serious part of the conversation, he said, so you guys are supposed to be in Florida today. I said, yep, it's where we got married. Today's our first wedding anniversary. I said, with Anna Marie sitting near me. Surprisingly, that really seemed to catch him. I mean, here's a guy who performs incredibly difficult surgeries. Of all the surgeries he performs, only two are outpatient procedures, one of which is a mediastinoscopy. And the fact that we were sitting there getting this news and planning a biopsy on our first wedding anniversary clearly bothered him. Now, I'm not saying he was breaking down or anything like that. It's just something that stopped him in his tracks for a moment. Oh, no, he said. Today is your first wedding anniversary. Your first wedding anniversary. I'm so sorry you have to spend it here, he said. And we appreciated the symphony, that, sympathy at that point. After five days of it, we were kind of numb to the whole deal. Either way, we liked this gentleman, and we felt quite comfortable with him. And considering he was going to be cutting me open in less than 24 hours, that was important. After getting details on what time I needed to be at the hospital and how long the procedure would take place, we left and tried to salvage our day, our anniversary. We went to Legrand's in South City to get some sandwiches. I'm a huge fan of that place, and it's just a few blocks from where I grew up and where my parents still live. I think I intentionally slash unintentionally picked Legrand's because I just wanted to tell my mom face to face what the surgeon had just told us, but she was not home. She was over at my brother's place, babysitting her at the time, one and only grandchild, my goddaughter. So Anna Marie and I decided to take our sandwiches over there and hang out with my mom and Molly. At this point, I was in this incredibly unique slash miserable slash surreal situation of attempting to celebrate our anniversary all while counting down the hours to when I would have a serious surgery, which would then lead to counting down the hours to finding out the results. It was important to have distractions, but it was more important to try and give Anna Marie as good of a day as possible considering the circumstances. So after hanging out with my mom and being amused by our niece, we decided to go see the movie Lincoln. I had really been looking forward to seeing this movie ever since I saw a commercial for it, but as it turned out, my mind was not present in that movie theater. In a dialogue-heavy film, which I usually love, my thoughts wandered to the mediastinoscopy the next morning and the dread of having to wait for that phone call with the results on Wednesday. Therefore, I didn't care for Lincoln, but my review is rather tainted. I wasn't locked in. As a matter of fact, I was more depressed leaving the film then I was going into it. Not sure why, but Anna Marie felt the same way. We didn't like the movie and we were not doing so well. You know how you hear people say you got to make lemonade out of lemons? Yeah, I don't do that. If I'm in a shitty mood, that's that. If I don't like a situation, I'm going to work to get out of this situation, not to make the best of it. In this case, however, I couldn't get out of the situation. I had no control. It was our anniversary. In about 12 hours, I was going to be arriving at the hospital for surgery. Both of those things weren't changing. So, I guess, I made lemonade for once. I told Anna Marie that I thought it would be good if we got out of the house and went to dinner at Kimmel's in downtown St. Louis. We both love the restaurant, 
and I thought a good feast at one of our favorite places would be best for our anniversary considering the circumstances. The less sitting around the house and sulking, the better. And so we headed downtown, outside of my pure rage over the city's continuing inability to time their motherfucking stoplights when the only thing crossing the intersections at night down there is tumbleweed. We had as good of a dinner as you could have in that situation. As awful slash odd slash sad as it may sound, the week Anna Marie and I were having made me appreciate our marriage even more. She deserved, at the very least, a night out on our anniversary. As a matter of fact, she deserved much more for the care she'd given me every single moment since I told her what my doctor told me. And we did our best as we sat there overlooking the arch. We were talking and screwing around with our usual odd banter, but we also looked around the restaurant at the other people having dinner. Look at them, I said. They have no idea how lucky they are. They may have problems at work or problems at home, but at least they don't have cancer. It was so damn difficult to think that a year ago, to the fucking day, we were sitting with our closest family and friends and having the best night of our lives in Sanibel. And 365 days later, the world had changed and we had no idea what the future would hold. Would the chemotherapy make it impossible for us to have kids? Would her life be reduced to just taking care of me? And would I even be around much longer? Awful questions, but real thoughts that crossed our minds. Anna Marie kept saying, well, even if they call us and tell us it's lymphoma, we've already experienced that before, so we know how we can handle it. But I was not doing so well with that idea. The nonstop roller coaster that started with the phone call and went for days with moments of hope followed by moments of despair and all the waiting in between was getting to me. As odd as it may sound, all I wanted to do is get to the hospital so they could cut me open and figure out just what the hell was wrong. That moment arrived when the alarm went off at 5.15 a.m., Tuesday, November 20th, 2012. We were to be at the hospital at 6 a.m. Maybe I'm too trusting, but I wasn't really worried about the surgery at all. I was more worried about what would come after it, the waiting for the phone call and the defining moment of the diagnosis. It was the second time I had gone under for a surgery, but in my procedure in 2006, I was having a septoplasty to fix my deviated septum. But in that case, I was going through something to improve in this case, I was going through surgery to confirm I had cancer and determine what kind of lymphoma it was. Suffice it to say, this one was, at least mentally, much worse. We arrived in the waiting room, and it's full of people. Some will have surgery in a matter of an hours, and the others are there because of those who will have surgery in a matter of hours. They called me back, and Anna Marie went with me. I got into that get-up you wear when you have surgery, I'm going to call it a nightgown, and laid in the bed. It was just me and Anna Marie. It was peaceful. And then, from outside of the curtain, a voice. Are you decent? That question was screamed from behind that curtain, separating my little room and the rest of the area. I said yes, and the curtain was immediately ripped open. Within 30 seconds, five or six people were in there doing all kinds of things, asking all kinds of things, and preparing me for the media stinoscopy. While I was being hooked up to a variety of devices, my cardiothoracic surgeon came by, he explained the time breakdown of everything. It was around 7.25 at this point. He said they'd administer the anesthesia around 7.45. He'd make the incision around 8, and I should be up around 10. The anesthesiologist came in and talked with me. He was an outgoing and amusing gentleman. He explained that he would be wheeling me down to the operating room. And so I kissed Anna Marie, and I told her I loved her, and off we went. I recall the anesthesiologist talking about the Rams 49ers tie as he wheeled me around. We went from a busy area with a bunch of people around through some doors to where it was totally quiet and looked like a spaceship 
with no one talking and everyone's face covered up. Surreal. I got into the operating room and was wheeled up next to the table where they'd conduct the media stenoscopy. They asked me to move from my bed to the operating table bed and let me know it would be warm when I laid down. I did so, and it was warm, but comfortable. The anesthesiologist was still talking, and I was still talking. Back in 2006, when I had my septoplasty, I remember the anesthesiologist had been doing the same thing. And then the next thing I know, I heard him in the middle of our conversation say, good night, and I was gone. Black. It was like the end of The Sopranos. So I was thinking of that as I was lying there, that whole good night thing. They put a mask on my face and told me to breathe it in. I did. I guess I didn't breathe it in well enough. I was asked to breathe it in better. I did. And then I heard it again. Good night. Next thing I knew, I was waking up in the recovery room. No family around, just a bunch of nurses and people who had just come out of surgery. Unlike 2006, this time I felt nauseous. So once I communicated that fact in something that had to sound similar to Sylvester Stallone's conversation skills in Rocky V, they kept me in there longer and gave me something in my IV to counter the nausea. Because of this, there was a delay in getting me back to the normal area. And so Anna Marie was beginning to worry. It was well past 10 a.m. before I was back to the normal area. Finally, I got back to the normal area, and that's where Anna Marie, my mom, and Anna Marie's parents could see me for the first time since surgery. I was starting to know what was going on around me, but I was still a mess. Uh, they tell me I was drooling when they first saw me, so that's hot. They wanted to give me Vicodin, but they needed to get some food in my stomach before I could take it. So in my first moment of experiencing the pain from the surgery, Anna Marie sat next to my bed and fed me a Nutrigrain bar in tiny little pieces like I was 18 months old. When I swallowed that first piece, it wasn't particularly pleasant, but I was able to communicate. So that meant my voice was not gone from the surgery. Eventually, after probably 15 minutes, I got the Nutrigrain bar down and I was able to enjoy some Vicodin. People kept coming into my little room and looking at me like I was a zoo animal. All I could do was barely raise my arm and make sounds. But after a couple of hours, I was good enough to go home. And so at around 1230, they wheeled me out of there and it was time to head home and begin the waiting process. At some point, likely in the next 28 hours, I was going to get a phone call that would determine the direction not only my life would go, but the lives of many other people close to me, many of whom thought I was in Florida celebrating our anniversary. When I got home, I was exhausted. At around 1 p.m., I got into bed and I slept until 7 p.m., when I woke up, I was still out of it, and my throat still hurt. But I wanted to make sure I did one thing. Text my family member, who was friends with the surgeon, to let him know that if he got the results the next day, the day before Thanksgiving, to let me know. He would not be doing me any favors, such as saving my Thanksgiving, by sitting on the information until Friday or the following week. So even if it was the worst news, I wanted it before Thanksgiving meaning I wanted it the next day if the results came back. He responded and said, okay, I will let him know. Considering they had gotten the lymph node out of me during surgery by around 9 a.m., I was pretty sure they'd have the results Wednesday. So now it was just time to wait and hope. Despite going to bed at 1 p.m. and sleeping for six hours, I was able to fall asleep all while knowing that the next day of my life would be one of the most defining ones I would ever experience. When you go on cancer forums, lymphoma forums in particular, the people who are posting there all have their type of lymphoma and their diagnosis date as their signature. I woke up on the date that would be my signature at around 9 a.m. It's a rather odd feeling to wake up 
and take that first step out of bed on a day that no matter what happens, you know you're going to remember the rest of your life. November 21st, 2012. Anna Marie was at work and I was all alone, but that's the way I wanted it. When that phone call came, I didn't want anyone to have to be there and witness it. It was already bad enough. I didn't want them to have the visual of seeing me when I got the news, the details of the lymphoma, and the next step as far as when I'd begin chemotherapy. So I was not leaving the house. It was just me and that phone and time. I sat down on the couch and began the wait. It's quite a helpless feeling whenever that thing rings. And it, of course, could come at any moment. Whatever the voice on the other end will determine the course of your life for the remainder of your life. Not a damn thing you can do about it. You just wait. And then at 9.30, the phone rang. It looked like the hospital's number, and it was. Hello, Mr. McKernan? Yes, this is the doctor's office. We just wanted to check on you and see how you were doing after the surgery. It's the first time I received blue balls with no one else around. False alarm. They weren't doing anything wrong. But when I saw that phone number pop up on my phone and when I answered it and heard it was indeed the hospital, I thought that was it, except it wasn't. So back to waiting by myself. I flipped through the channels, trying to find a way to kill the time. I have no idea why, but I wound up switching to one of the movie channels and it could happen to you with the great Nicolas Cage and delightful Bridget Fonda. For those of you who don't remember this piece of film history, it's about a New York City police officer who's in an unhappy marriage to a woman played by Rosie Perez. Nicholas Cage's character doesn't have money for a tip one day at Fonda's restaurant, but he does have a lottery ticket, and so he promises her that he'll split the winnings with her if he happens to win the lottery that night. Well, guess what happens? Cage and Perez win the lottery. Cage is a man of his word and gives half to Fonda. Perez is pissed and now interested in banging the guy who played Shackelford, an indecent proposal. Cage and Fonda fall in love. Hilarity ensues. Romance abounds. And even after Perez gets to keep all of the money in the divorce, New Yorkers feel so badly for Cage and Fonda that they send them a bunch of money in the mail. The premise of the story seems rather absurd. So I suppose it's fitting that I was watching it. But when it was over, it was still only 12 o'clock. Anxiety was high and time was moving slower than ever. I decided to call my mom and see how she was doing. Not surprisingly, she was upbeat. I don't know. I just have a feeling everything's going to be okay, she said. I don't want to tell you why, but I just have a feeling. And then her voice would trail off like she had something she wanted to tell me, but she didn't want to say it for fear of a jinx or something. Something was up, but I didn't know what. She kept inviting me to come over to the house, to her house, to my parents' house, but... I just didn't want her to have to be there when I got the call. I didn't want her to always have that visual. So I stayed at my house and went back to the couch to just wait. At around 1 p.m., the doorbell rang and it was my mother-in-law. Now I know it's a running joke for people to rip their in-laws, but I'm incredibly lucky that my in-laws are such kind people. And in another example of that kindness, my mother-in-law had shown up on her own because she couldn't stand the idea of me being by myself on this day. So we sat we talked, we waited, nothing else to do. And then at around 2 p.m., the phone rang. It looked like the hospital again. This, this had to be it. Hello? Hey, I'm calling you from work because I don't have my cell phone. It was Anna Marie. And the first three numbers of her work are the first three numbers of the hospital. Holy fuck. She, of course, wasn't doing anything wrong. It was just terrible timing and one hell of a coincidence that her work number, which she had never called me from before, was so similar to the hospital's. 
She just wanted to check on me because she hadn't heard anything yet. And because since, obviously, she didn't have her cell phone, she didn't know if I had gotten the call yet. So now at this point, I'm wondering if I'm even going to get the call before Thanksgiving. It's 2.30, and it's the day before a holiday and a four-day weekend. Maybe the people who would analyze my biopsy weren't around. Maybe my surgeon was gone for the weekend, and maybe both my family and I were going to be waiting for five days until at least Monday to find out. My mother-in-law and I went back to the talking on the couch. We were talking about whether or not I had kept details of this week, and I told her I had indeed begun a journal. I said that I always regretted not keeping a journal when I bought the InsideSTL.com domain back in July of 2005. So for this odyssey, I was going to make sure I did, even if it ended in the saddest way possible. Just as I was saying that, the phone rang. This time, I knew it was the hospital. And this time, I knew it was the call. I looked at the phone and I said, well, here we go. I got up and began to walk away from the living room because I didn't want my mother-in-law to see the reaction. Hello, Mr. McKernan. This time, it was a male voice. It was the cardiothoracic surgeon. Nearly to the minute, one week after getting the first phone call, it was finally time for the verdict. Yes, how are you doing? Fine, how are you, I asked, as I walked toward the front of my house and away from sight as quickly as possible. Good, he responded, and then he paused before saying simply, no cancer. Two words, the two most beautiful words I could hear, no cancer. I had been walking, and when I heard those words, it took the air out of me. I crouched over, unable to stand for some reason, and the tears started to flow. Nearly one week to the minute of getting the worst phone call I'd ever gotten, I received the best one. The emotion was overwhelming. The feeling was euphoric. My body was numb, and for the life of me, I couldn't stand up. I was thinking as a first anniversary gift, I could fax the pathology report over to your wife, he joked. It was on that pathology report that it said no malignancy. He kept talking, but I just kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, like I was John Kelly on speed. I don't think we scared you unnecessarily. That CT scan really looked like cancer, but... It's likely sarcoidosis. So this is the kind of phone call that I'm happy I get to make. I thanked him probably about 300 more times and got off the phone. My mother-in-law could tell by the conversation that I had gotten the shockingly good news phone call, and she was crying as well. By the time I got off the phone, I noticed I was lying on my steps like something a one-year-old would do when he's protesting having to go to bed. I was just lying there, stunned, immobile, overjoyed. I embraced my mother-in-law and said, I got to go. She knew exactly where I had to go. I got in the car and I headed up to Anna Marie's work. In the meantime, I called my parents and told them the news. It was one of the best calls that I've ever had a chance to make. I guess it's not always bad when your dad cries. And as it turns out, my mom did have a reason why she was so confident everything was going to work out. More than 20 years ago, there was a potential serious family medical situation. My mom, who is quite religious, went to Mass. She was very concerned, and then the first reading was from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and give you hope. My mom said that when she heard that reading decades ago, she became calm and knew everything was going to be all right. She never forgot that moment. 
So what happens when she goes to Mass after I told her that I had cancer? She's sitting there listening and praying, and what does she hear in the first reading 20-plus years later? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and give you hope. And that was it for her. She told me that right when she heard that reading five days earlier, she knew I was going to be all right. Amazing. That's her faith. That's her hope. When I got to Anna Marie's work, I saw her immediately. She didn't see me until I got to just a couple of feet away from her. When she saw the look on my face, she knew. I grabbed her, and like the week before, I just held her. We were standing in the middle of her workplace and really couldn't care any less. I'm not sure how long we stood there like that. I just remember we didn't say much. Probably couldn't. Probably didn't need to. I, but really we, had been given a second chance. All I had back was exactly what I had eight days earlier, but because of this experience, it made me infinitely more grateful for those things. It's hard to explain. I mean, you can write those words, but until you've actually lived it, you have no idea how grateful you are for your health, for your family, and just, for gen- and just in general for life. The best analogy I can think of is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Now, while I do run a business, I don't think too many people would make the Ebenezer Scrooge comparison. Based on the number of producers I have on the morning after, I think more people would make the MC Hammer comparison. And coincidentally, there's a character named Tiny Tim in the book. Do with that whatever you want. That's free material for you. But the reason I draw the comparison to A Christmas Carol is that for one week, when I thought I had cancer, I was in a state of reflecting upon the past with great nostalgia, observing the present with great sadness, and wondering about the future with great fear. All I wanted was to wake up from the nightmare and have everything be back to normal, just like the main character in A Christmas Carol. I think that story is so timeless because everyone can relate to the experiences of Ebenezer Scrooge in some capacity. The happiness of the past, the challenges of the present, and the fear of the unknown that lurks in the future. And I think many of us would love to have the experience he had in the story, the ability to do it all over again, the ability to make changes now, and therefore the ability to make a better future. Even though I wasn't visited by, like, by ghosts like Ebenezer Scrooge was, I sure as hell was scared. But in the end, I got the same amazingly good fortune. I got to wake up on Christmas morning, Thanksgiving morning in this case, which just happens to be my favorite holiday, with an appreciation for the simplest yet most important aspects of life, family, health, and happiness. It was the perfect Thanksgiving. About a year later, I had another conversation with my cardiothoracic surgeon. He said whatever I had did indeed look like sarcoidosis. And in talking to a couple of different pulmonary specialists, it's the kind of odd sickness that in most people just pops up and then goes away. 90% of the patients with sarcoidosis they see don't even receive any treatment. That's not to say that it can't be serious. It's an illness that can destroy people's lives. It's not completely understood but it's unique in the sense that it can be serious or it can just pop up and then go away. Fortunately, my symptoms at this time are nothing more than a cough, and after doing numerous tests, the sarcoidosis hasn't spread. My doctors expect it to just go away. My cardiothoracic surgeon also informed me that my CT scan had fooled his fellow surgeons. At their weekly conference, they showed my CT scan. Apparently, my lymph nodes were so messed up, and the CT scan was that dramatic. So when they showed the surgeons the scan, they all said, that patient has cancer. Then they showed them the pathology report stating that I don't have cancer, and they were all shocked. It sounds like I was much more likely to have lymphoma than I even realized. And I have to be honest, I feel some form of guilt. 
I wasn't even sure I wanted to share this story with the listeners of the show and the readers of the site because of the guilt. I got lucky. I did not do anything special. I just got a horrible phone call, a horrible phone call that so many other people, so many other families have gotten. But I was one of the few who got the second phone call, the good phone call, and I feel guilty about that. When I read about Chris Duncan, when I read about his mom, when I read about Claire Blaze, when I read all of these incredibly sad stories of people battling cancer or passing because of it, when I hear about the devastating impact cancer has had or is having on families of my friends, it crushes me emotionally. Wonderful people going about their lives. And then with one trip to the doctor, everything changes. And while I can speak to the horrors of the first chapter of the story, I can't speak to the rest of it. But after sharing the story with the people closest to me, and debating whether or not to tell it publicly, everyone said that I had to. My brother Kevin, who is regularly thanked at the end of every show for no particular reason, cited one of his favorite writers in explaining why I had to, from Kurt Vonnegut. Quote, When you get to my age, if you get to my age, which is 81, and if you have reproduced, you will find yourself asking your own children, who are themselves middle-aged, what life is all about. I have seven kids, four of them adopted. I put my big question about life to my biological son, Mark. Mark is a pediatrician and author of a memoir, The Eden Express. It is about his crack-up, straitjacket, and padded cell stuff from which he recovered sufficiently to graduate from Harvard Medical School. Dr. Vonnegut said this to his doddering old dad. Father, we are here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. My hope is that revealing one of the most difficult and personal weeks of my life will help some people, help them think twice about any minor ailments they may be having and be aware that a perfectly healthy 20 or 30-something can get hit by cancer. If this story leads to someone going to get checked out when otherwise they wouldn't have, then I'm all for it. Help them appreciate what they have. No matter what, even if someone tells you it over and over again, you can't have full appreciation for your health until that very health is threatened or perhaps taken away. It's like when an older person tells you when you're a child to enjoy these times because they'll go away quickly. But perhaps over the holidays, if you're fortunate enough to have your health and have the health and love of your family around you, take that moment in and appreciate it. When all hell breaks loose, it's those people who will be there for you. And finally, as I learned throughout my week of thinking I had cancer, I'll say it again. You just can't put a price on hope. Even when you think it's over, even when you think every moment you have will be occupied by the idea that you either have cancer, even when you think your future is one of chemotherapy, radiation, and long odds, or there's still that hope they can all get back to the way it was before that trip to the doctor. And if you can get through and get back to the other side, you'll have an appreciation for life that will make the everyday problems you used to sweat seem laughable. And the everyday experiences that you used to take for granted seem beautiful. The story is proof that the doctor's analysis is not always right and that the long shot can come in for victory. I'm in no position to give advice, and I loathe when people tell me what to do or what I should do. But if there's one message to take from this story, it would be to not give up hope. Hope did not fix my body and take cancer away, but hope did get me and my wife through that week of hell. And it was hope that gave me the feeling in the back of my mind while it was all going on that maybe, just maybe, instead of having to get on the air and telling you all that I'd have to go away for a while, 
I'd instead get to explain my mom's City Slickers reference and how she couldn't have been more right. It was the worst week of my life, and it was also the best week of my life. And that's that. That's five years ago, The Price of Hope. Read through that whole thing without having to go back, which was good. Um, and I hope the spoken word uh, is impactful as the written word. I have no idea if it will be. But the reason I told the story then and the reason I'm retelling the story here on the fifth anniversary of it is because at the time I was 36 and thinking that I, not necessarily invincible, but that cancer wasn't even on my mind. Like I said, I thought I was going to get a Z-pack and be done and fly to Sanibel. And then 48 hours later, I'm told I have cancer. So one of the things that I do that I guess is good, although it, it annoys the hell out of doctors, is if I have any slight ailment, I go and get checked on. Um, and I certainly do that way more now than I used to, uh, because once you have that happen, it just you're, you become a hypochondriac of sorts, and I certainly have become one. Um, but the message is to those of you listening— and to those of you listening who can impact your family or friends who might not really want to go to the doctor, don't go to the doctor regularly. If something is going on, going to the doctor early can not only give you peace of mind, but catching something early can truly be in some capacity either preventative or can help mitigate the potential damage of whatever it could be. But the main reason I tell that story is because of the roller coaster of emotions we experienced that week. And how, when I look back on it, and I look back on it now with the benefit of five years in the rearview mirror, of how I specifically recall when we had hope, it was okay. And when we didn't, it was as depressing as it possibly could be. And even though, as it turned out, when I found out a few months later in talking to my doctor who had called me to tell me I have cancer, not only did he believe I had lymphoma, as he later told me, and this was about two or three months later, he said, your chest was so much of an outlier as, a, as far as the appearance of your lymph nodes go that I was fearful that what you had was the most aggressive form of lymphoma, one that a friend of his had uh, his daughter suffer from, and she passed away in three months. And so while he was calling me, and he wanted to be the one to deliver the news, uh, because he didn't want me to hear it from a, essentially a stranger, and I had known him for 20-plus years, so his motives were as pure as can be. And I, I don't have any, not even the slightest, never did, don't now, ill will at all. I mean, he was doing what he thought was a good thing. In that moment, as he was telling me, in the back of his mind, he was wondering if I had this really aggressive form, and I believe there was a name for it, but I, I can't recall what the name was, but that it had killed his friend's daughter in, in less than three months because my lymph nodes were that out of whack. To this day... I still really don't know what happened. Uh, it's been five years. Uh, I guess I have sarcoidosis, but like I said, it is really rare for a white male to have. That does not mean that it is not possible, and I have been diagnosed with it. Uh, as I said 
in the story, The Price of Hope. It's something uh, that many people have and then don't suffer any symptoms from, but then at the same time, some people do have it and it is absolutely debilitating. Given the alternative, you take sarcoidosis and you're told you have cancer, but it's nothing to just turn up your nose at as if it's a nothing. So I want to make that clear. I have been lucky. Um, but the main reason for sharing this story is to convey the importance of family and the importance of hope. And um, I hadn't read that story. I don't know if I've read it in a couple of years. I try every November to read it just as a reminder kind of puts me straight, even though it takes about 45 minutes to read through. Um, it has value for me. I, ideally, it has value for you. Um, and it serves as a reminder of, you know, I, I mean, because I remember on the day I got that phone call, 45 minutes earlier, I was in a conversation about a business deal that seemed like the most important thing in the world. And an hour later, I couldn't have cared any less about that business deal, just like that. And so you always hear when something happens, it puts everything in perspective. And it does sound like a cliche, and it might actually be a cliche, but I can tell you firsthand, it puts everything in perspective. And I also can tell you, and those of you who have been there can, it can speak to this, I would imagine, you can handle it and handle it being a relative term, but it's calling your parents or seeing your wife and telling your wife or telling your husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or in-laws, brothers, sisters, close friends. That was the thing that ate me up. That was the thing that ate me up. But there's my mom. There's my mom, as she always is, right there with the optimism. And of all things, a City Slickers reference. A City Slickers. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this is, a, you know, this is as serious a conversation as we've ever had in our lives between the two of us. And she's, she's busting out a City Slickers reset. And I'm thinking, what in the hell? Is she lost it? Is she like losing it because she thinks her son has cancer? So she's bringing up City Slickers of all movies. But she's right. It, it was the worst. It was the worst. And then it became the best. November 14th, 2012 was the worst. November 21st, 2012 became the best. And as miserable as it was, the perspective gained from it is something that you can't put a dollar value on. But I'll tell you this, whatever that dollar value is, it's less than the price of hope. Thank you to those of you who have shared this with me. And if it can be of any benefit to someone you know who is dealing with some form of a battle health-wise, a friend, a family member, please feel free to do so. I'm honored uh, that people have considered the story to be as powerful as it is, but all I'm doing is retelling an experience. And if that experience leads to somebody going to the doctor, if that experience leads to some form of inspiration for a battle you or a loved one is enduring, then that was the reason why we decided to make something very personal public. You're always welcome to email me. T. McKernan at InsideSTL.com with feedback on the podcast as a whole uh, and or um, with any guest suggestions um, or any thoughts. I just like to hear from the people listening. T. McKernan at InsideSTL.com. For my producer, John Seymour, I'm Tim McKernan. Thank you for listening to The Tim McKernan Show.